We really believe that for eco to become mainstream, which is our mission, right? We want to make eco for everybody. It should be, it has to be at this point. Eco needs to be better than the status quo. And that's really our goal with Everest is delivering products that are delightfully better than what you're currently used to using, but just happen to be, you know, as close to zero waste as possible. You're listening to the Entrepreneur Podcast from the Western Morissette Institute for Entrepreneurship, powered by Ivy. In this series, Ivy Entrepreneur and Ivy faculty member Eric Jansen will anchor the session. This is the perfect Cinderella story of two entrepreneurs working in corporate jobs, identifying a massive problem to be solved in a huge market, and leaving their stable, well-paying jobs to solve it. Jamie Jenkins and Jessica Stevenson started Everest just a year ago and are poised to change the beauty industry entirely. A completely new blue sky innovation, Everest waterless shampoo and body wash formulas aren't just better for the planet, they're actually a better product. The company's already been featured in Forbes and been called one of Time's best inventions of 2021. They've been featured in Chatelaine, Cosmopolitan, Elle, and Men's Health. In this episode, we talk about their journey in founding a direct-to-consumer company, what to focus on in the early stages, the value of sales, and the importance of starting with the problem and giving yourself time to come to the right solution. Finally, we talk about starting a business and raising a family at the same time, what trade-offs to expect, and how to make it all work. I started using this product just a few weeks ago and I am already hooked. This is the next big name in beauty and I'm excited to share a sneak peek into their growth story. Enjoy my conversation with Jamie and Jessica from Everest. All right, I'm here with Jamie Jenkins and Jessica Stevenson from Everest. Ladies, thanks for coming on the podcast. Nice to be here. Yeah, good to have you. I'm excited to talk about your journey. It's a actually fairly typical one for a lot of Ivy entrepreneurs, which is sort of the corporate route turn entrepreneur after accumulating a few few good years or a decade potentially of good work experience. And I want to get to that story. I want to start though with your background in corporate. I know Jamie, you specifically actually started in, I think, sales at P&G. Can you talk about what is, why did you choose sales as an early career option and why was that a good launching off point for you? That's a great question, Eric. I think everybody should do sales at some point in their career. And I feel like starting with sales is like an excellent place to begin. So I took the sales job because I wanted to work for Procter & Gamble. I thought it was an incredible place to kind of learn the ropes of marketing. And that's the role they were hiring for. So I did a summer internship um, with P&G between my third and fourth year at Ivy. And then they hired me on for full-time after I graduated. And uh, I did about a year and a half of pharmaceutical sales. So visiting doctor's offices, talking to their staff. Um, It was a tough gig, but I feel like you learn so much about, you know, confidence and resilience and so many skills that are applicable later in your career that um, I think it was a great experience. So a lot of students maybe don't see the path, but you started in, you started in a few different sales roles, built that thick skin, learned how to pitch a value prop. And then where did you go from your first sales roles? So I was in the field for a while. I had some good kind of traction there. So they actually moved me into the office at P&G to be a trainer, a sales trainer. And that was actually a really interesting role. I don't talk about it a lot because we tend to focus more on like our beauty experience. Um, But it's really interesting because we did a lot of kind of deep dives in, you know, how to persuade and influence people, how people think, how people make decisions about what products to choose. 
Um, and I got kind of all of the basics of the PNG kind of sales and marketing training, which, you know, they're really exceptional at. So that was a really fun role, you know, training PNG's sales force. Um, and then eventually I moved to more of a marketing role with Procter & Gamble. Neat. And Jessica, uh, you, I don't think you started in sales. You were more on the marketing side, but also in beauty, correct? Actually, I started my career in food. So before making the switch over to beauty. So after Ivy, I started at General Mills um, and I first started actually on snacks division. So I was launching new granola bars. As uh, so my first launches was actually the original Fiber One bars. Um, and it was just a really great experience moving from innovation to, you know, working on St. Nature Valley and then later Cheerios and Pillsbury, you know, doing traditional brand building. Um, it was just a really great training environment. And I think in an environment like that too, you really are the general manager of your brand. You own everything. And I think from an, uh, from an entrepreneurship perspective, you really get to kind of oversee and manage that whole kind of hub and spoke model. So it's a really great um, experience to kind of lead into this world right now. So typically a lot of students learning entrepreneurship will come to me and talk about wanting to identify the right opportunity or come up with the right idea. And we push them to really to think about the problem, like what's really the problem that you're solving. And from my understanding of your story, that is exactly how you came to the solution ultimately that you arrived at. So I'd love you to spend maybe just a few minutes talking about what is the problem that you recognized in your previous role and how, how did you think about the solution? The most jarring stat I think that kind of jumped out at us is the beauty industry produces 77 billion units of plastic packaging every year. And I think Jess and I really wanted to explore if there was uh, a way to do beauty without single use plastic. That was kind of the starting point in terms of what the problem was. Um, and I think, you know, another, that's kind of the world problem. One thing that we come back to sometimes is there's a world problem and there's also, you know, a personal problem as well. What's the problem for the customer? And I think the problem for the customer that we had identified in our own lives is, you know, there wasn't any eco options that we felt were high enough performance or convenient enough to help us make that switch to, you know, more sustainable products. Um, and we felt there was a need for something that would be, you know, close to what people were used to and their expectations for a, you know, high performance beauty product, which is what led us to create Everest. Uh, you didn't jump immediately to waterless hair care products. It was like, okay, there's this, this problem of the way that the entire industry operates today. Let's start with how do we solve that? And your solution ultimately, from my understanding of the product is... Um, there's so much water built into the products today that there requires bigger packaging and you're actually paying to ship around larger plastic packages. So if we could just concentrate it down, make a better product and concentrate it down, package it up in an eco-friendly way, ultimately the solution that you arrived on for the problem. Yes, exactly. But we did explore um, many different alternatives before we got the problem. And I think because we explored those different alternatives, it allowed us to be much more open-minded um, to then really narrow in on the idea we end up having. And I think if we didn't start with that problem, um, we may never have got to the same solution because there really was a lot of trials, a lot of pivots along the way. And I think just being open-minded allowed us to keep pivoting until we found something that we thought met our criteria, which was that performance, convenience, um, environmental credentials and, and scalability. So um, that was all important. 
This is the interesting transition from doing, uh, having a full-time corporate job and jumping into entrepreneurship sort of over time is that I think you actually get to spend more time sitting with the problem. There's not like, you know, um, if, if it's, for example, if someone just graduated and it's like, there's no income, the runway's running out, they don't have a support network or a partner or whomever that they can lean on a little bit. It's like, I need to have an income. This is the solution we're sprinting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's it was it's it's great for that reason of having you know some time to explore. I think there's other challenges in the sense of like you you have are used to having this team and you know kind of what good looks like, and then to start on your own, you know, trying to do it all and and knowing. I think when we look at some of our earlier versions of the product and sharing them with our you know close network and knowing you know this isn't where we're going to end, but this is kind of our our first starting point. I think that piece can be challenging, but. Um, it's all an evolution. And I think just, you know, starting from the beginning can be tricky. Um, but knowing that I think you'll get there in time was, was helpful. No, I was just gonna say, definitely, I think having that corporate career first, it definitely gave us, you know, the frameworks and the experience. I think we were able to tackle the problem differently just with, um, you know, I don't know, just the, a very analytical mindset, just being able to really understand the, you know, the beauty industry, knowing how it works was really helpful. Um, and so I think having that experience first before jumping ship was just um, very uh, useful. So you're decade plus into your careers, hitting your stride, and then decided to jump off of that path and do something maybe crazy, maybe crazy, but it seems to be working out so far. So can you talk about that decision point of like, when did you decide that this was the right opportunity for you to jump into? Totally. Well, after P&G, I did about a decade at L'Oreal. So I really learned kind of the ropes of the beauty industry. um, And Jess can speak to her experience at Revlon and Nude by Nature as well. But we eventually made our way into beauty. And I think we love that industry, you know, worked a lot on um, different global brands for them. And, um, you know, overall had such a, you know, great experience and learned so much about marketing and product development. But I think, you know, a couple of years ago, Jess and I, you know, who are longtime friends, were talking just about the changes that we were seeing in the industry and specifically a change in kind of the consumer awareness and demand for, you know, more sustainable solutions, particularly in terms of an awareness of the plastic waste crisis. I think it all started around, you know, 2018, you know, China stopped taking a lot of North America's garbage. There was all of a sudden a lot of awareness around plastic waste. And I think we really recognize that, you know, the beauty industry was a really big contributor to this. And there was a really big problem there that needed some creative solutions. Um, and we really started with, you know, that question, which is, you know, how, how could you even do a beauty company without single use plastic? What could that even look like? Because, you know, the whole model is built, you know, a certain way. And I think we did try to make some changes within the companies we were at. And, you know, it's harder for these big companies to change quickly because they have kind of their established models. Um, but we really did start to see this, you know, come back over and over again and realize it was not necessarily a trend, but I think the way that, the beauty industry and the consumer, you know, product industry in general needed to go in the future. And we really wanted to be part of that solution. And so how you said you started sort of working on it internally, but sounded like maybe that they just weren't gonna, this change will potentially eventually happen, but just wasn't going to happen in the short term. And that was your frustration with it. Like, why did, why did you leave ultimately, I guess is my question. Uh, The change I think wasn't happening fast enough for us. 
So I think, you know, there's a lot of great initiatives that these companies are doing since we've left. I think they've rolled out some wonderful ones. Um, and, you know, everybody's moving in the right direction. But I think, you know, Jess and I really recognize that as a, as a you know, consumer population, we need to be moving faster and we need to be making more dramatic changes. Yeah. So. And I think there's just the luxury of being able to start on your own. We actually could build it from the ground up um, and allowed us to make some choices that I think are a little more difficult to make once you're an established organization. So as I said, we commend people for, you know, obviously larger organizations making small changes, it can really add up. But I think we really just wanted to do something more transformational um, and also hopefully inspire some bigger change that we'd love to see in the industry. So let's get into the details of how to quit because uh, I, I've talked to some guests, uh, Craig Follett, who I think is a friend of yours about how he de-risked, he was at a big consulting firm and how he de-risked the decision to leave. Um, I think the perception is that sometimes people, you know, the idea strikes them in the middle of the night and they're at work the next morning and they quit. And two weeks later, you know, they're funding this company with millions of dollars and off to the races. The reality is usually much different. I'd love to know your process of like, you know, from the time that you recognized, oh, this is seems to be an interesting opportunity or problem that we want to try to solve to actually leaving your full-time job and getting the company going, fill in the blanks there for me. Yeah. That was a really long period of time. Like I would say probably like 18 months from the problem being maybe a year from the problem being recognized to feeling like we had something that, you know, it was worth leaving our corporate jobs for our executive roles for and walking away from our salaries to build all of that stuff. So I think, you know, we started again with this, this question of like, how do you do beauty without single use plastic, but we spent, you know, a long time doing explorations of what that could look like. So we looked at a whole bunch of different business models and, you know, crunched a lot of numbers on what they could look like, um, talked to, you know, friends and family for their feedback. We looked at things like, you know, retail, refillery stores. We looked at milkman type of models. Um, Jamie, sorry, when, when did you do that? You had a full-time job. So was this like evenings, weekends, like what you would just come together and brainstorm? <laughs> like when did, when did it happen? It was all, it was always on like evenings and weekends. I think it was, it was more of like a passion project at that point. I think that's, you know, when you need to be, you know, doing this stuff in addition to your very demanding corporate career. And I think we really both really loved our jobs and respected them and we're fully committed to them as well. Um, so I think you, it has to be something that is also an interest because you will be spending your free time exploring it. And that's really, you know, how it worked out for us. And we, you know, we're just really curious on like, how do we, you know, how do we solve this problem? We were hearing more and more information, not just about plastic waste, but also, you know, the health impacts of microplastics in our water systems and, you know, thinking more about, you know, the real change that needed to happen. So lots of exploration, lots of the ideas that we explored and dismissed actually had, have come to market now, which is really cool. And I think it just shows like there's so much, there's so much interest in, you know, making change in these consumer industries, which is wonderful. Um, but it took us a while before we felt like we had an idea that was really, you know, really had legs, which was this concept of waterless, which we saw first um, in the home cleaning industry. You know, there's always cool brands that were popping up, ones like Blue Land and um, Supernatural that, you know, were built on the insight that cleaning products for your home are mostly water. They're in single use plastic bottles. So we're paying to ship 
plastic bottles of water around the world, basically. And we thought, huh, that's really interesting. We're pretty much doing the same thing in beauty as well. There has to be an application here. So I think once we kind of drilled into that one, we really knew we had something different and you know, it hadn't been done before um, with this waterless pace concept. And we thought we had an opportunity to be the first. How did you know the other ones were not, I mean, I guess they ultimately were successful for other companies, but how did you know you worked through a bunch of different potential solutions to the problem? What was your criteria or how did you know that that was not the right one for you? Yeah, I think um, that's a great question. And I think for a few different reasons, as Jamie was saying, I think we definitely crunched some numbers and I think on some of them, um, they were not profitable in the way that we had modeled it. Now, I think there are some interesting solutions, one of them being the milkman model. Um, however, you know, uh, TerraCycles Loop is actually doing something super cool, um, but they've also partnered up with some very big organizations, I think, to make that, you know, model work. And it's amazing. Um, there's been some other ones that we dismissed maybe in, you know, retail in terms of scalability. Um, it also turns out with the pandemic, that was probably a, a good decision and we're lucky um, that we're able to kind of continue on this entrepreneurship journey during a pandemic. Um, and I think the other big one is just performance. I think, you know, coming from beauty, um, I think we really know that as much as we want to see change when it comes from, you know, an environmental standpoint and a clean ingredient standpoint, um, in the end, beauty is about performance. It needs to work. Um, and so some of the things we tried in terms of, you know, mixing at home with water, um, just not having the consistency, not having the sensorial experience that maybe you would come to expect from the product, or also just asking people to do these extra steps that just aren't as convenient. I think those are just really important factors to make sure that you can have that adoption when you're looking at. I think for us, we really were trying to find a product that yes, it was transformational and yes, there is some learning curve, but really how do we get it as close as possible to what people are already used to? So it's that minimal change, almost like once you get used to it, you actually see it, we call it an eco upgrade and it actually adds value to your routine and something that's easier to adopt and become a habit um, than really trying to, you know, take them to this further place. And, you know, we see often say that Everest is for people who want to love shampoo bars, but just can't, just can't get on board. Um, and so this is sort of that intermediate space that can really, you know, you can love, you can have great hair, um, but you also can be doing something great for uh, the environment. Yeah, it's interesting. You're starting to see that tipping point of, across a lot of these more sustainable businesses, right? Where like the early electric cars were like, well, they're not, they're not actually that great looking, uh, but I know that it's good for the environment. So there's these early adopters who are going to jump on board with them. Mm -hmm. And now as there's more and more companies that are companies that are becoming you know, well known to consumers, it's like, actually, these, these cars both are good for the environment and are, I think, better products. Absolutely. Um, it sounds like be, similar it thing is be happening. Better. It absolutely similar has things. to be better. That was our kind of benchmark. And I think it's helpful. Like it's helpful sometimes, you know, you can do it without this being the case, but for us, it's helpful when you are the customer and you're looking, you really understand the product that you're looking for. And, you know, we wanted the performance, we wanted the convenience, like those were, you can compromise on those. And I think we really believe that for eco to become mainstream, which is our mission, right? We want to make eco for everybody. It should be, it has to be at this point. Eco needs to be better than the status quo. And that's really our goal with Everest is delivering products that are delightfully better than what you're currently used to using, but just happen to be, you know, as close to zero waste as possible. In what order did you get these things going? So there's obviously, um, this is a, a direct to consumer brand. I think there's a few things that you probably needed to really nail to get this right. We, well, we started with product and 
kind of back to that theme of it being an evolution and a journey. Um, it took a long time before we got the product right. So as Jess had mentioned, once we knew waterless is what we wanted to do, we had explored a whole bunch of different ways to do it. So things like mixing. And Jamie, let's, sorry, yeah. let's explain like, what is the product today? We, we've mentioned waterless a few times. Yeah. Like what is Everest? Everest is a brand new beauty company for eco-optimists. And we've just launched with our very first patent pending products. We've launched the first waterless concentrated shampoo, conditioner, and body wash. So traditional shampoos, body washes, um, conditioners are like 70, 80, 90% water. So we've taken out the water, concentrated them down into 100 mil aluminum tubes. So you pretty much take a tiny strip of this paste on your hand in the shower, you activate it with the water in your shower that you're already used to using, and you get a beautiful sensorial clean shampoo, conditioner, or body wash experience. This is going to be different for me when I try it for the first time. I just placed my order because I'm pro probably like most people used to like filling my whole palm totally. with shampoo. So if this is a concentrate, you're saying I actually use far less of the product. Yes, exactly. You use about a third of what you would normally use for shampoo, but you get the performance, you know, in terms of lather, in terms of scent is far exceeds, we would say the traditional shampoo experience. Yeah. Okay. And that was actually very difficult to achieve to just to kind of go into a little more in the sensorial experience. So the product is we call it, it's part of clean beauty. So um, it's sulfate free. So usually it's very hard to get that lather experience, um, you know, with a sulfate free product. We're also plant-based, vegan, et cetera, very, very clean formulas. And of course, uh, synthetic fragrance free. So to get that scent, we use a blend of essential oils. So again, just really trying to be clean. When we think of, you know, environmental impact, we really have three pillars that we look at. So one, you know, sometimes people think about is packaging and, and we can go through that, but packaging definitely is a part and making sure we think of circularity and, and et cetera, um, and having single use plastic free. But we also think about ingredients and what goes down the drain and into our water systems. Um, so make, said making sure those are plant-based, very clean. And then we also think about our business practices overall. So in terms of being a 1% for the planet member, being uh, climate neutral, not just in shipping, but our whole uh, supply chain. Um, so really trying to think about it from a 360 perspective. And then in the end, really trying to do the heavy lifting on our end um, so that the customer can just enjoy you know, having great care and just feeling good about that purchase. We just want to make eco easier. Yeah, that's great. So let's, I want to come back to how did you like early testing? Is this like in mm -hmm. your home, in your bath? Like where are you putting together these early concoctions? So we knew we needed a chemist. So that was kind of the first partner that we needed to bring on board. So we did a lot of meetings and eventually landed on, you know, the right fit in terms of a contract manufacturer, which is how pretty much all beauty products are made more or less um, with a chemistry team in-house. So we worked with them for months on different formulas and it evolved from, you know, mix at home to exploring powders, to exploring a bunch of different options to the paste concept um, and then when we got the paste concept, we spent, you know, many more months refining it to get the right texture to be, you know, soft enough to work with the aluminum tubes that we're using because we're single use plastic free to get the performance, the stability, um, they do all of that work in house. So, um, yeah, that was kind of the journey. The product piece came first to answer your question before, you know, the branding came second. Um, but I think really getting the product to a place that we felt um, 
we would be happy with, which took hundreds of versions. It was very, very complicated. And, you know, first time it's been done. So there's lots of um, research involved. Um, and then once we had that, then we kind of set up the rest of the business. And for those early tests, um, you were self-funding it or did you raise any money? Like, how did you get this initial thing off the ground? Yeah, so at that point in time, we were self-funded. Um, so that was we did really just more on the R&D side and the development side. Um, we were lucky um, in terms of, you know, we want to talk a little bit about funding. Um, we did network actually in the fall of 2019. Um, and this is kind of early on in our discovery. So we're working on product development, um, did not have a formal, you know, business plan at this point in time, but definitely had lots of ideas. And uh, we actually found um, some great early investors through York Angels Group that we sort of fell into, really clicked um, at sort of a, a Christmas party. And we actually pulled together our business plan to talk to them in January of 2020. And they just really loved where we were headed and really just believed we were onto something and helped us raise a small seed round. And you can think about the timing here. It's quite interesting because we're talking January, February, 08, March pandemic. Mm -hmm. uh, so obviously that's, it was pretty uh, surprising. So, you know, we were lucky that we we're able to keep those initial investors. We did kind of extend the round into August of 2020 just to close, but we actually oversubscribed the round. So again, small round, but definitely gave us uh, some funds to be able to kind of continue on our development journey, but also to your other question around brand building, really to start developing out that brand. And, and that really was important to us. I mean, back to the thing about making eco for the mainstream, having a brand that's cool and inviting and just really an upgrade, that was super important. So uh, we went on a whole brand uh, journey, both, both our backgrounds are in brand building. So uh, we, yeah, we went through and uh, had a great agency partner that helped us build that out. And uh, yeah, and for us, I think the other part of the brand that's important was actually being gender neutral. So we really spent a lot of time um, trying to make sure that it was, you know, bright and cheerful. We called it a brand for equal optimists. We didn't want to have the traditional kind of granola and, you know, the greens and the, the beiges and the whites and the doom and the gloom. We really wanted to have that optimism come through in the brand, but do it in this gender neutral way that really brought everyone, you know, into the fold. Um, and so that was a, it was a fun journey uh, to get there, but we think we've, we've cracked it for now. Obviously I think there's more work we can continue to do. And I think now just talking to our community and learning from them, it's very helpful. Yeah. Such a critical piece in these D2C brands, right? Like the, you can't, we talk about minimum viable product, which of course is important, but I think when you're launching D2C, the brand needs to be good. Like you need to have thought through that brand and probably made that investment in the brand from day one. Um, so just order of operations here, uh, recognize the problem through your cor corporate jobs, mm -hmm. realize that the solution wasn't pending, uh, at least not in the short term from these big companies. So decided to go off and do it on your own, uh, experimented on your free time with different potential solutions. Mm -hmm. Love that you actually talked about or thought through the, maybe not the business plan, but business model early on, just like, let me run some numbers. Ooh, this solution won't work. Even if it's the right solution, it, it, it doesn't make sense commercially. So that helped you cut out some of the options. Um, funded it yourself for the product development. And then once you had a product that you were comfortable with, that's when you raised the money. 
Actually, we had some early samples, but it wasn't our final product. So okay. um, I think, you know, having the idea, having something to show for it, even if it's yeah. not the actual final one, um, in our case, you know, finding those that right fit of investor who really saw, you know, I don't know, just behind the curtain of like, this is this is something big here. Um, they really believed, I think, in us too and in the long term. So we actually, with that very minimal viable product, because it, it wasn't even um, the final format, um, they invested uh, yeah. to help us bring that to life. Because as you said, there was quite a bit of steps that need to be done after that uh, to get us to market, which we actually launched in February of 2021. So this year. Yeah. Awesome. Mm -hmm. So then, then you can, with the money that you raise in those early days, then you can think about scaling out the product and building out, uh, investing in building out the brand properly. Is that right? Yeah, it helps fund like our brand development, our initial inventory. Um, there's a lot of, you know, doing things, um, I don't think ethically and sustainably costs a lot of money. <laughs> so, right. you know, everything is produced locally in Canada. Um, our tubes are um, sourced from Ontario and they're aluminum tubes. So the minimum and they're direct printed. So like minimums for those are really high. Um, so lots of things, lots of reasons that we needed a little bit of initial capital to get started there. Yeah, makes sense. Let's talk about launch for a second. Um, you've got a ton of press from most recently uh, Time, one of Time's best innovations or inventions in 2021. You've been covered in Vogue, Chatelaine, Cosmo, L, Men's Health. How? How did you get that coverage? A PR agency. <laughs> PR partner. People always ask, how are you doing it? And I think, you know, it's a matter of knowing where you want to focus in the beginning. So we are, you know, I think there's ways to do it on your own. And Jess and I have that background. And I think because the product is so innovative, we could have made some good waves ourselves. However, it was really important for us when we launched um, to make sure that, you know, we got the word out of the product as being kind of our innovation first to market we wanted to make a big splash so PR was really our big marketing investment for launch and you know we we still were are kind of in scrappy entrepreneurial mode we have partners that we work with that are you know ex-colleagues from L'Oreal that are kind of freelance and have then started their own agency they're wonderful partners and um, there's a U.S. partner as well so there's actually two freelancers that we worked with that have really kind of led the charge on that one um, but it was a big you know, it was still an investment for us and it was a big focus for us with our launch to make sure we, you know, created the news that, you know, Everest was here and it was the first to market concept. Yeah. And it's not, there's actually substance. It, it is a differentiated and better product. So the story, exactly. like, it's not a story of a me too product or a different, you know, same product, different packaging. I think it's a story that has legs because it actually, you put the time into developing something that truly is different than what else is out there. Totally. You can hire the best PR agency, but if your product is boring, it won't matter. I think you really yeah. need to have a story to tell. And, and that was really important to us when creating the product. Yeah. So can you talk through the, some of the things that, again, let's your experience here in uh, direct to consumer companies, what are the things that you did in house uh, and thought, you know, we, we want to own this. We want control over it. This is what we're going to spend most of our time on versus things that you leaned on partners for, or I'm not going to say outsource because you're still involved, but things that you lean on partners for more than doing yourself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think, you know, I would say our, our model has been sort of like, 
start small with some like freelance partners and scale, I would say that we've been pretty heavily involved in each of those pieces. So like say we brought on an agency to help with the brand building, we were very much involved the whole way um, and made sure we found partners that were good with that and let us, you know, be part of it. Um, you know, same with, you know, there's PR, for instance, developing our website. Of course, we needed a developer to help us with the website. Uh, but myself, you know, I dug in and, and learned a lot of things of how to set up a Shopify site. And Jamie did a lot of the branding and make sure all of it. So I think and every you know, word of copy on this every software. word of copy. So I would say like, definitely, I would say that blended between being scrappy and being in everything. I also really think there's something to understanding everything yourself uh, from at least a baseline perspective before you kind of outsource it. So I think from us being in our corporate jobs and, you know, being marketing directors and general managers, I think, you know, we got at a higher level. We had teams that were doing things. And I think taking a step back and actually rolling up your sleeves and doing things and getting in there, it was really, really helpful, especially beginning. And then of course, as we scale, you can't do everything. And so finding where, you know, our strengths are um, and then finding people who really complement us. And I think, you know, we really lean into, you know, the gig economy and amazing freelancers um, mm -hmm. who support in different areas of the business. And then of course, we're trying to grow the team as well. So we're currently a team of five um, and we would love to continue to build out that team. So what would you say, uh, looking back now, how, how far in are you on working on this full-time? Well, I guess there's working on it full-time and then actually product launch. So product launched in February of 21. Mm -hmm. yeah. So less than a year old. Yep. yep. But there's a bunch of homework uh, before that. So maybe you've been on this full-time for how long now? So fall of 2019. Yeah, two years now. Two years. So you're two years in. Yeah. Looking back on your journey now after two years, what can you say are the things that maybe were you were intimidated by or scared of that actually ended up being not so bad? And then the things that maybe you overlooked that are were harder than you thought they were going to be? Hmm. I would say the biggest, like this isn't your question, but the biggest surprise was COVID. <laughs> I think we, yeah, we didn't see that coming and that delayed our like time to market um, a lot. But I do think, and it also has made everything much more complicated from a supply chain point of view, um, you know, everything in terms of getting the product and, and lots of details there. But I do think there's always, we try to always find, you know, silver linings and everything. One thing that has helped us um, in launching during the pandemic is we've had a lot of access to through PR to a lot of editors and you know writers um, through Zoom meetings that we wouldn't normally have been able to reach. Normally you'd have to go and do like a circuit in New York and LA and meet them all face to face if they had time to see you. But I think the fact that everybody could be reached on Zoom um, actually worked out in our favor to get more, you know, FaceTime with and tell our story to more of these beauty journalists. So it's been, you know, there's been lots of challenges because of, of COVID and the pandemic, but there's also been, you know, things that have been helpful. Um, but I definitely think we'll hopefully be in that class of like forged by fire entrepreneurs who launched <laughs> mid COVID and brought a product to market. Yeah. Okay. So COVID surprise uh, made things harder mm -hmm. on the supply chain uh, side. Brand sounds like maybe reaching out or getting in touch with some of these big press outlets with the help of a PR firm was a little bit, not easier because I'm sure there's still work involved, but uh, that's turned out well for you. What about you, Jessica? What's What's been easier than you thought or harder than you thought? I don't know about easier, but I think, you know, maybe just really positively surprising, I think was, you know, when we're going through the pandemic, you know, the question around sustainability being a focus versus, you know, price sensitivities, et cetera, you know, was that going to be here to stay? And I think something that we saw 
throughout the pandemic and really strengthening after, like as we're coming, coming out, we're not done, but we're coming out is that, you know, people are even, they've taken a step back and they've really, you know, thought about, you know, their lifestyle changes, the impact that they're having on the planet, um, the climate crisis and different things that are happening around the world. And I think people are actually more aware. And I think too, because during the pandemic habits had to change. And so I think as people change in those habits, they're a little more open-minded uh, to try something new. So um, I think obviously there was lots of challenges during that time, but just again, seeing it um, as an opportunity and just seeing what people are, are yeah, their awareness is, is very helpful. Mm -hmm. So you launched this, Jamie, in the middle of a pandemic with a few young children at home. Um, I've read recently, and there's been some commentary on uh some fairly well-known investors in the Valley saying that they wouldn't invest in someone who was taking either paternity leave or maternity leave, which I think is a challenging message to send because that the signal is that you can't have a family and start a business, which in my own experience is not true. Uh, doesn't mean that there aren't trade-offs or that it's not hard, but um, I think that it's, it's not true. I think that there is a way to make both happen. You made both happen. And I just love maybe your perspective on, what it was really like and maybe message to other people who might be in that same boat. Yeah. Hearing, hearing that message that you're sharing is so frustrating because I think it keeps a lot of people, you know, out of this space where I think there's a need for more, you know, female founders, more parents, more people to, you know, take the leap into entrepreneurship. So I think it's really important to, you know, share studies and case studies of how, you know, it can be done. There's some great, examples out there now, you know, Joanna Griffiths is, is one of our investors with Everest. She, you know, just did a big raise right before she had twins. And I think having these stories out there and sharing them really helps show that there is, you know, so much opportunity. Um, I won't lie. It's been very challenging, but I think, you know, the reason that it's, it's been able to work is because of the people around us. I couldn't have done it without Jess. And I think, having a wonderful team, whether you have a co-founder or you have a, you know, strong support system around you is absolutely critical to being able to, to tackle both. Cause it's very challenging, but also, you know, it's incredibly rewarding to, to be able to have that fulfillment on both sides of your life. And I think people shouldn't be discouraged from, you know, being difficult. I think starting a business is hard, but being a parent is also very hard. I think they're equally hard <laughs> in their own ways. And I think yeah. just making sure that you um, have that right support system in place and the right people around you is, is what makes all of the difference. Yeah. And to the extent that you're willing to share, what's the, what's the trade-off between you and your, you and your partner? I mean, what starting a business is pretty full on. Um, it's hard to imagine that, you know, both of you are, uh, at least in my own experience, it was hard for us both to be going full on at the same time. And so when we were looking at each other with foot on the pedal, someone had to let up. Yeah. Um, I let up a bit, uh, and I'm now teaching, but it's also the job that I truly feel like I wanted to do so that it wasn't really, mm -hmm. I don't feel like I was sacrificing. I got to come teach and that gave me a bunch more flexibility. So I wasn't traveling as much and trying to run a company. If you're willing to share what, what's the behind the scenes trade-off, you know, it's funny, neither of both of us a bit have our foot on the gas, but I have a wonderful husband. He's a, a partner at KPMG. He has a very demanding job as well. Also, like when you're doing when you're in the startup world, you're not really taking much of a salary. So we really do rely on, you know, his income. So he can't really stop working or take a big step back. So that's been a, a hard, 
you know, challenge because we both have our foot on the gas, but I'm so fortunate that, you know, we really truly have, even though he's making the money and I'm not making the money, you know, we have an equal partnership and he is, you know, incredibly involved in all of the parenting, you know, details. And um, yeah, I'm really, I'm really grateful for that. And I think, you know, other things have had to, something always has to give. So other things, you know, have to slip, you know, our house is a mess and <laughs> there's laundry everywhere. And we've scaled back on, you know, a lot of free time stuff and we work on the weekends and we take, do shift work when the kids are at home. It's not easy, but I think, you know, we both love our jobs and are committed to our jobs. So, you know, something always has to give somewhere. And I think just finding, you know, those places that you're willing to make a compromise for the short term in terms of, you know, doing something you love. Yeah. Maybe we can, if we spend a second there, let's talk about that for just a reality of what it's, what it's really like. I think I, I appreciate hearing, and I think people appreciate hearing that like, yeah, you might give up. Your house might not be spotless anymore. You know, you so might. far from spotless. <laughs> you might. Our weekends uh, are like four, doing 14 loads of laundry and grocery shopping because we don't have time to do that during the week. So it's really, you know, it's chaotic. And I think trying to carve out a little bit of time for, you know, wellness and self-care to keep yourself sane is really important. And so we both try to build, you know, that in as our little bit of luxury, but um, it's definitely full on right now. Um, so having an awareness of kind of what you're signing up for is important, but if you're the kind of person who, you know, gets bored easily, loves to be challenged, likes lots of stimulation, then I would think it's a, a great option. Jessica, what do you do to stay sane? What do I do? Hmm. I mean, I think, you know, obviously during the pandemic, it was a little bit different, but I think just trying to get outdoors, uh, was great, you know, making sure you fit in some fitness, whether myself is biking, I just actually got a Peloton so I could do that through the winter. So I'm very excited. Um, I'm also, you know, I have a great partner too. My husband is extremely supportive. Um, and so, you know, trying to see friends, do things like that and, you know, find that balance. I think it's balance is a funny word. I, I think we always try to seek balance in careers. And I think it's, it's almost like you're striving for perfection and it's just not always possible. I think, I think more about like work-life integration and really trying to understand, you know, if you love it, um, it really just becomes part of your life and having a little bit of flexibility is amazing. And then if you work evenings or you work weekends, as Jamie was saying, that's totally fine if you're passionate about it, but you have that flexibility in other parts of your life. Um, and for me, that's made a huge difference. Um, and I'm very, I don't know, it's fulfilling. So it's great. Yeah. We don't talk enough of, I think about the behind the scenes support network that needs to be in place in order for businesses to happen. You know, I think, uh, mm -hmm. having a good relationship with a partner who understands what you're signing up for and the trade-offs and you can, and grandparents, I need to give a shout out to grandparents for, you know, we made the choice to live, you know, in the burbs close to our family. And I think having grandparents close by, you know, we're so fortunate to have that. Um, when the kids were in and out of school the past year, like that's been incredible. I think we'll be forever grateful for that. So really that support network, you know, is what makes it possible. To the supporting cast. Thanks to the supporting cast of all the people who don't get yeah. the shout outs, the behind the scenes supporting cast. Sure. Um, <laughs> last thing. Um, what can we do to help you? You're you've launched just this year. You've got your first, uh, you know, maybe full year of operation coming up. Uh, we've got a group of passionate people who are either entrepreneurs or uh, want to be entrepreneurs one day. How can the community help you? Great question. Well, obviously for us right now, you know, we're getting the word out about Everest. So anything like this is is great, and we just want to. 
uh, continue to spread that. I think we're also always looking for, you know, partnerships and, and like-minded, um, you know, people, brands, et cetera, to collaborate with. Um, we view everybody in this space as, you know, partners making a difference. So um, we're very open um, to, to that type of uh, collaboration. Um, Jamie, if you have anything else on that. No, if you are looking for a new shampoo or conditioner or body wash too, try the product. I think you think you'll love it. It's really an awesome. Yeah, and share your feedback. I think we we really are working on building out our eco-optimist community, as we call them, or a group of Everest. And, you know, definitely try the product. Uh, give us feedback. It's really, really helpful. Um, Tell us then, what other products you yeah, want next. What other eco-upgrades, we call it. What else are you, you know, struggling to go eco? And we're looking to find innovative um, solutions to be able to make those uh, changes easier. So the feedback is extremely helpful. Awesome. Well, this is such a unique time to capture your journey. I have no doubt that you're on the right path and I think you're going to have a great season here and I'm excited to see what's to come for the company. So thanks for coming in and allowing us to capture this sort, short little snapshot of this point in your journey. And we'll have you back on when you have your next major milestone, which I'm sure is just on the short-term horizon. Awesome. Thank you so much, Eric. It's been great. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. The Entrepreneur Podcast is sponsored by Quantum Shift 2008 alum Connie Clarici and Closing the Gap Healthcare Group. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast player or visit entrepreneurship.uwo.ca slash podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time. <laughs>